Hey, what's good, everybody? It's Cedric Warren, your host of Said Talk. Get it like TED Talk, but it's me. Couple things. It's March, and we're already into the third month of the year. Can't believe it. 2020 is moving along pretty quickly. That's usually how it goes. January kind of drags along. February is quick, and now we're into March already. Uh, but speaking of March, this month is Women's History Month, and all month long on Said Talk, we will be highlighting women in various industries and different fields on the show. So definitely make sure you are checking out these episodes. So this month, we're kicking off Women's History Month with my own family. Super excited to have her here, uh, Celeste Warren, a.k.a. Auntie. How you doing? I'm good. How are you, nephew? Good, good. Thanks for uh, joining us. Super excited. You were one of the first people I thought about uh, when I decided to come up with this topic and do this for the month. Um I definitely follow you on LinkedIn, look at a lot of your uh, presentations and things like that. Uh, so I'm definitely, I guess you could say a professional fan of what you do. <laughs> <laughs> Thank so, you. Good, good, good. So before we get into the questions and things, I want to just talk about a um, little background on Women's History Month. So the origin actually began as a national celebration in 1981 due to the passing of a public law. Uh, from there, the president at the time in 1982 um designated the week of March 7th as Women's History Week. And then over the next five years leading into the late 1980s, National Women's History um, Coalition actually petitioned to Congress the to designate the month of March as Women's History Month. So March 1987, Women's History Month was established. So a little over 32 years we've been celebrating that. Um, but although that recognition itself was established formally, we know that women have definitely been contributing to society in the world uh, long, long before this actual recognition. So it's definitely important that we uh, continue to recognize the strengths of women's accomplishments in, in all things we do. So today, Auntie, I want to get into your work and your experience. And so go ahead and introduce yourself. Uh, tell us about yourself as well and what you do and how you got started. Sure. My name is Celeste Warren, and I am the Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer at Merck, a pharmaceutical company that is in about 120 different countries around the globe. And we're known as Merck inside the U.S. and outside of the U.S. We're known as Merck Sharp and Dome, MSD. Um, I've been doing, I've been at Merck for, oh gosh, 20, this is my 23rd year. And, uh, but I've been the Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer. This is my sixth year doing that. And it's been uh, just an incredible, incredible journey um, over the course of the last six years of self-discovery, both professional and personal, in, in taking on this role. But that's a little bit about me. I am uh, married to John Warren, and I have two children. One is a freshman, can't believe it, in uh, in college, my right. daughter, Christina, and my son is a junior in high school, uh, Stephen. 
Nice. So y'all can imagine that these are my cousins. And I remember when both of them were born, uh, going further back, I remember the first time going up to Philly uh, and we were at Merck and you were working there. I'm not sure what you were doing then, but uh, I remember you got us some T-shirts and we kind of walked around and checked out the office for a little bit, too. So uh, that was cool. But um yeah, Christina is now a freshman at Arizona State University. Uh, she runs track. Um, she just had a indoor competition in Washington, correct? Yeah, it was the um, conference regional championship, and she uh, placed third in the region in the women's triple jump, which for a freshman, that was pretty phenomenal. So right. um, she was disappointed she didn't make nationals, but that's okay. Yeah. She's just a freshman. She got yeah. a lot, lot more time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We like to drive. We like to competitiveness. Uh, she's definitely going to make a splash. For, so we're definitely proud of her. Uh, I love bragging and boasting about her on social media every time I see any accomplishments. Uh, so is Steven still into <laughs> soccer? Steven is still doing soccer, and he, right now, we're looking at colleges for him. Nice. He um, wants to continue to play soccer in college, so he's gotten some, uh, we started that whole college recruiting, reaching out to coaches and things like that, mm -hmm. and um, he's gotten a few, um, she was a, well, a lot of college coaches now that are, that are reaching out to him, so um, we're really, really excited about going through this process with him. But your your uncle is more the soccer dad. I'm more the track mom. Yeah. Uh, because we had to divide and conquer. And right. We're just you know traveling all over the the country. Right. But uh, yeah, it's it, it's fun watching him go through the process. You're, even though they were raised in the same household, the way they approach the whole thing was, is just a little bit different. It might be a gender thing, too. So, mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, we're enjoying it, watching Stephen go through this and helping him choose the right school. That's I'm good. trying to talk about – I talked to him about University of South Carolina, too. So yes. we'll see. Yes. I, you know, I was super excited when uh, Christina announced her top five and South Carolina was there. Uh, I was super stoked. Like, I saw her in the garnet in black, and I – like I almost shed a tear because I was like, "Oh, it's family. That's like a new new generation of Warren at USC, man. I, I love it." Um, but I'm definitely happy for her. same thing with Steven. Wherever he goes, we'll definitely be excited. I need to get me an Arizona State track tee um, as well, so I'm gonna get one of those in post. But yeah, it's super exciting. Super proud of them. Uh, so that was just a moment to kind of brag on the Warren family there. If you're not, <laughs> so just oh, wanted another following in in their cousins footsteps though in the STEM field so both of them majoring in an aspect of biology nice so that's that's another thing that I'm very proud of good Good, good. Yeah, uh, they're 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 great kids. Um, so okay, so let's get into our uh, discussion. So just give us like a little bit of your educational background, uh, where you went to school, uh, what did you study, and uh, we'll go from there. <clears throat> okay, sure. I I went to school at the University of Kentucky. I played volleyball there, and um, I majored in telecommunications and an undergraduate in political. Um, a minor in political science. And um, I was a reporter when I came out of undergraduate, a sports reporter. So I covered at the, uh, I lived in Lexington for a couple of years. So I covered the Kentucky Wildcats, the Louisville Cardinals, Cincinnati Bengals, and some horse racing in there too. But um, loved it. But the, the challenge was 
in that industry, um, 10% of the people are making 90% of the money and 90% of the people are making the other 10% of the money. So there's not a lot of money in it. And so I, um, I got tired of writing home to my mom and dad for rent money and I was out of school and working. So I decided to go back to school, went to graduate school, and my mother talked me into coming back close to home to the Pittsburgh area. And I um, was gonna major, I was gonna use my poli-sci minor and my telecommunications and being a reporter, and I was gonna go into, uh, like campaign, being a press ser- secretary or campaign manager or something like that. Mm-hmm. And um, when I, I decided to go to Carnegie Mellon University, the School of Urban and Public Affairs, it's called the Heinz School now. And uh, I was talking with my guidance counselor and she said, oh gosh, you don't want to do that. Have you thought about human resources? And I thought, well, I don't want to do human resources because my paradigm about about that field was a little old lady with a bun in her head packing out half a season. And, and she said, oh, no, no, no. It's, it's uh, compensation and benefits. It's learning and development. It's um, uh, talent management. It's all different types of things that you could go into. And so I interviewed uh, for an internship at General Foods in White Plains, New York, and got the internship, and internship there between my first and second year of graduate school, and just loved it. It, it was a, sort of a hand-of-glove thing, it just fit me. And so um, I, they ended up offering me a full-time job after I went back. And so I went back and worked in White Plains, New York, my first job. Um, there and did labor relations and sales tra- training and development and then um, moved to Jacksonville, Florida and I worked there in labor relations at, uh, it was part of the Maxwell Coffee Division and did, um, uh, it was a, a, a manufacturing facility. So worked there and then, um, and also in Hoboken, New Jersey as well. And um, then I got a call from a headhunter and they said, hey, we have uh, an opening at Merck. They're expanding their, their uh, human resources organization in the United States and would you be interested? And so I called my sister who at the time worked at Pfizer, a competitor of Merck. And she, I thought she was gonna give me, you know, sort of, well, you know, you don't go to Merck and, and all of that. And the first thing she said when I asked her about Merck was, you got to go and interview. It's a great company. Mm-hmm. So to have her who's been at Pfizer um, to say that kind of piqued my interest. And so I went to interview, um, got the job and uh, moved to Richmond, Virginia. And that's uh, where I started out in Richmond, Virginia uh, field sales office and was a human resources leader for the Richmond region, which was all the way from Delaware, all the way down Baltimore, DC, Virginia, and West Virginia was the, was the region. Um, did that for a couple of years and then I was promoted to having the whole mid-Atlantic region, which includes the Richmond region, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. 
and that's where uh, in Richmond I met your uncle. Nice. And uh, and we ended up dating and um, and got married when we moved to uh, back up to Pennsylvania when I got the uh, Mid Atlantic job that was in Pennsylvania. So I worked um, worked at Merck for in different different roles in human resources supporting. The sales, the commercial sales and marketing organization, the manufacturing organization, the research organization, uh, and vaccines as well. And then about six years ago, I got a call from my boss. I was at the time I was the head of the HR for the manufacturing organization and also the uh, global labor relations center of excellence. And I got a call from my boss, and uh, who was the, she was the head of HR for, for the company. Mm-hmm. And she normally, when we have our regular one-on-one meetings, um, we would do it by phone because you know it was pretty informal and um, and kind of laid laid back. We had a great relationship, and so she <laughs> she called, and her her secretary called me and said, "Oh, um, Celeste." Um, Marianne asked if you could come over to her office for your one-on-one uh, today. And I was like, well, okay. <laughs> so I'm sitting there thinking, okay, what did I do wrong? Right. <laughs> and, and she called me over and uh, so I'm, I'm in her office and she says, Celeste, she goes, I know how you feel about um, the diversity and inclusion leader position, but um, I really would like for you to think about taking over the role as the company's chief diversity and inclusion officer. And the reason why I sort of, the reason why she prefaced that was because I had been asked a couple of times um, through succession plan discussions by um, previous chief diversity officers and HR leaders um, to think about, you know, eventually taking on that role. And I had always said, no, nah, I'm not really interested in it because it just, diversity and inclusion as part of, you know, who I am, my, my background, my passion, and how I integrated it into my responsibilities in human resources, whether I was supporting the sales and marketing organization, research organization, or the manufacturing organization. I integrated into everything that I that I do and did. And and I I was a little worried because I wanted to make sure that if I was if that was something I was gonna do that people had to be as passionate about it as I was. Um, and I didn't want to just go in and be wasting my time. And so, and I had had that conversation with my then boss at the time on several occasions. And so she she said, I know, I know, you know, but I really, you know, I really, we need your energy, your passion and, and your um, results orientation uh, in it because we're just not getting the results that we want to see. Right. And so um, she said that if you know, just think about it. And um, Ken would like to talk to you. Ken Fraser, our CEO, would like to talk to you about it. And so her office was right next door to Ken's. And so um, 
And I said, okay, well, you know, I, sure. And she's like, well, no, he kind of wants to talk to you right now about it. <laughs> <laughs> and so I um, went, and I had known Ken from uh, some previous positions and, um, and, and talked with him and had a good relationship with him. So I, I went into his office and, um, and talked to him about it. He, he said, um, you know, asked me what, what questions that I had of him about it. And, um, and I said, well, I really just have just one question. Are you serious about, about it? And he said, well, why? And I said, because if I'm going to take this role, I have to know that, you know, I have your support and your air coverage, because if I'm going to go into role, I'm not going to, I'm not going to mess around. It's going to be, you know, all hands on deck. And right. We're going to really make some progress. For sure. And I'm going to be pushing people who don't want to be pushed. And so he said, so in the course of the conversation with him and with my boss, I was sort of turning the corner around how I was feeling about the role. And he looked at me and he said, well, what if I told you that I wasn't serious? And and I looked at him and, and it was sort of like um, he played sort of the opposite game with me. And I, I just looked at him and I said, well, you know what? That's too bad because I'm going to push and I'm going to push. And if I take this role, you're just going to have to be along for the ride. Right. And he laughed and he said, so he goes, that's, that's what I want to see in a chief diversity and inclusion officer. I need that fire. I need that passion. So we have to make progress. We have to do better. And I said, you know, okay. And he said, okay, great. He said, um, and this was in the late September, early October timeframe. He, he said, um, great. All right. Come back to me in, um, in December with the strategy for the company and let's get going in January. Oh, wow. And so, um, yeah, I, it was, it was absolutely hilarious. You know, and that's the way Ken is. He's, he's passionate. He is um, a great leader, and he's very results-oriented, as you can see from the performance of the company since he's been the CEO. Right. So um, the rest, as they say, is history. And so I um, went on sort of a listening tour, listening to leaders, listening to managers, listening to employees, listening to those that were passionate about diversity and inclusion, and even to those that were not so passionate about it, and just kind of listen, ask questions and listen to see kind of where we were from a current state, and then also kind of un trying to get an understanding of where people thought we should be. I also talked with um, people outside of the company, people who were in the diversity and inclusion industry to talk about kind of how the industry has progressed, what are some of the challenges, what are some of the obstacles, what are some of the um, areas that, that where the industry needs to evolve globally, and then kind of looked at, well, where do we want to be as a company in diversity and inclusion, and put a strategy together with the team that I had inherited at the time, and, uh, and then um, met with, with Ken and my boss and went through the strategy with them and um, they gave it a thumbs up and went home relaxed over the Christmas holidays and came back in January ready to ready to go. That's good stuff. Good stuff. 
So thanks for that. That's good. Uh, your story, I actually thought of like four different things I could potentially ask you. Uh, so we may deviate a little <laughs> bit uh, with that story, but I, I think that was great. Uh, thank you for that. So I just want to give us like some quick statistics. I'm, uh, I work in public health, so I deal with statistics and things all the time. Uh, so one of the things that I did some research on was just talking about women in leadership uh, and the gaps that are there. Uh, so women make up 50.8 of the U.S. population. Uh, they earn more than 57 percent of undergraduate degrees and 59 percent of all master's degrees. Uh, they earn 38 percent of all MBAs or master's in business administration degrees and 49 percent of all other specialized masters. So that could be an NPH, uh, a master's in public administration or any other kind of specialization. Uh, they account for 47% of U.S. labor force and 52.5% of college uh, educated workforce. So yet with those numbers, uh, many of them nearing 50% or over 50%, they still lag substantially behind men in terms of representation and leadership positions. So my first question to you, um, which you've kind of touched on a little bit, just speak a little bit to your experience uh, as a woman in leadership and black women in leadership. Um, and maybe a little bit about your leadership style. I um, thank you for um, doing the research too, because that is exactly the challenge that we face. We are, especially when you think about the school, graduate school, colleges, graduates, the majority now are women. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are, what we're seeing is um, an awakening that's happened over decades, but what's different in the last probably three to five years has been women elevating their voice and, and from the standpoint of almost like they just said, we're just tired of it. Right. And, and we're going to elevate our voice and we're going to make sure that we're heard and um, you, you see it in the Me Too movement, you see it in, in a lot of uh, other um, movements and, and different things that you see from the standpoint of um, um, advancement of women. And the challenge has been that in the baby boomer population, baby boomers are still, they all of them have not retired and they're still in in corporate america in the positions of power yep and the 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 percentage gender uh ratio in the baby boomer those positions it's still um women are still in the minority so that's part of the challenge and so what we're going to eventually see just from the standpoint of the demographics and the evolution of the demographics as the baby boomers retire more and more and more, you're going to see that that flipping. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to see more women advancing through um, the the C-suite and the executive suite. You're going to see more women getting into the senior level um, roles. You're going to see more women on board, and and eventually more women in CEO positions. And in, um, in, in, in the public sector, in the government, in, in the House, in the Senate, in more advanced administrative uh, positions on the Hill. So that's going to happen more and more and more just 
from the standpoint of osmosis, but that's not that's not fast enough. We don't want it to happen just because the demographics is evolving. Right. We have to do things that are more purposeful and planful. Right. Intentional within change. Within the organizations. And that's where, you know, you sit and you talk with leaders um, that are in those positions of power. And, and, and there is a a feeling and a fear of it's a it's a zero sum sum game. It's it's a win lose. It's um if I am not in the position and it's a person a a, a woman I'm losing. Mm-hmm. And un- unfortunately, they have to relinquish. They feel like they have to relinquish something of themselves in order for women to advance. And and so there's. There is got there has to be a conversation with the majority that are in um, positions of power, so they understand that number one, you already got a big old piece of the pie. We you can afford to give up a piece of a, a, a piece of a, bit, a little bigger piece of the pie right. um, for gender equality. Um, secondly. When you look at the labor market, as you said, and it's majority women, mm-hmm. when we're talking about the war for talent and the war for uh, employees, women, when they're coming into an organization, they're interviewing and they're looking around the organization and they're, they're paying attention to who's in managerial positions, who's in leadership positions, who are in, who, you know, who's in the C-suite. They're paying attention as they walk the hallways and they're interviewing and they're paying attention to who they're interviewing with and they're making decisions as to what companies they want to go to. For sure. And if we don't, if we as an organization in corporate America, if the company doesn't reflect that workforce of what's happening, then we're going to lose, you lose the war on talent and you're going to, your, your company is eventually going to fail because the, the majority, which is going to be women in the future, um, will not want to come to your company because you haven't made it a gender, a gender neutral, gender thriving company. Mm-hmm. That's a good term. I like that. Gender thriving. You know, interestingly enough, um, so I've worked in public health. I've been in health field uh, pretty much my whole life's public service uh, type volunteering, things like that. Since I started working, I have never had a male manager or supervisor. All mine have been females and majority have been black females until I got to my position here in Indiana. But even then, I still had female leaders. Uh, So I thought that was interesting, but I know that's just a small piece. Like you mentioned, uh, that's a small uh, piece of the pie where there's plenty other places that people do not have uh, women in these managerial executive leadership positions as well. Uh, You you mentioned something interesting, too, about how women are uh, taking the opportunity to show their voice or let their voice be heard. I'm reading a book currently called uh, The Originals, The Originals by Adam Grant. It's called uh, Originals, How Nonconformists Change the World. And he mentioned in this book about how having an original idea, uh, if you're a woman or just in a minority group, um, how difficult that can be to kind of get that out there. And he mentioned that in the example he gave, there was a woman who was working 
working for the CIA and she wanted to increase the amount of um, what do you call it? I guess you can say information sharing between the other federal um, intelligence agencies. Uh, but her idea was shot down initially, one, because she was a female. This is like the early 80s. Uh, most of the leadership was male and she didn't have what he mentioned was the status or the power. Uh, so eventually time went on and she gained the trust of some of those managerial folks as well. Um, and the status was more so about the respect of her being able to do her job, being quality and stuff like that. Uh, and not necessarily going against the status quo, but more so kind of working to uh, improve the situation that was there. So she did that for a couple of years, eventually got back to a, a, a leadership position uh, in a director role and where she had that power to kind of make that change. Uh, so it's interesting that you made that, uh, <clears throat> that comment about that too. So that was good. Um, my other question is for you, uh, is, did you always aspire to be in leadership or was this something that kind of developed? Would you, would you say that came from playing sports or anything like that? <clears throat> you know, it's interesting. I, I, I don't think I, when I came into corporate America, I don't think I said, oh, I want to be, you know, a vice president or this or that. I just wanted to do my job well. And I think from the standpoint of being an athlete, I had a high standard for myself. And I, it's so funny, I, I didn't, um, compare myself to others. And so when I, I, I'll never forget when I, when I came to Merck, I, I, as I said, I was in the Richmond sales region and it was a small region, even though, you know, it had uh, a lot of employees, but they all, they're all sales reps and they all work out of their homes or district sales managers, et cetera. And so, um, the, the regional office in itself was a small office of, of those of us that have offices there. And um, when I would go, when my boss at the time would, who was over the U.S. market, HR, um, the HR employees in the U.S. market, he would have periodic, maybe twice a year meetings where he'd bring all of us together across the nation. It was about 35, 40 of us at, at different levels. And, and I just was going about doing my job. And, and when I came to the Richmond region, I was new, the regional sales director was new, the region analyst was new. And the Richmond region was one of the worst sales regions in the United States when we came there. And we kind of put this plan together, um, look and to strategy together to, to elevate the region, so increase sales and all of that. And mm -hmm. a large part of it was, um, looking at the, the employees to say what are their skill gaps and um, putting together developmental programs to increase their abilities and, and if, it, if we needed to change people out doing that too. So we sort of um, put the strategy together and so when I think it was, we, I had been there probably about a year and we had um, gone from being in the bottom tier region, one of the bottom tier regions, to 
a top tier region in, in just one year with the strategy. And so um, the head of the U.S. market, HR U.S. market, he at our HR meeting, he said, so I thought, you know, I want you to present kind of what you did in partnership with the, the region leader. Uh, what you did from an HR perspective, and present that at the at the at the national um, HR meeting, and so I was like, you know, okay, whatever, and I presented it, and um, people were like in the audience, their jaws were like open, and and I thought I'm sitting here thinking, oh well. Um, Gosh, you know, was it that bad? Was my presentation that bad or whatever? Mm-hmm. But it was the exact opposite. And and afterwards, um, people were coming up to me during the break and saying, you know, God, that that was such, you know, I can't believe that's so good what you did, and 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 we want to take that in 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 our sales region, and we want to do this, and blah 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 blah. And I just I didn't have a I didn't really compare myself to other people. I just went about doing my job. Right. And um and so as a result of getting that exposure to um, the senior HR leaders, um, I got the promotion of a year later to the director of the, of the um, Mid-Atlantic region. And, um, and, and, and it's, it sort of, sort of just um, excelled from there. I had a good mentor who kind of told me, Celeste, you want to be that person who when a leader has a problem or a challenge, a business challenge, you want to be that person who they say, I want that person to be on the team that's going to fix that problem. And so, it, you know, it's sort of like if you have a, a boat or an island, you know, who do you want on the island with right. you? Right. And right. and that was kind of sort of the mindset that I had, even in in, in my mid career when I was in you know my first managerial role. Right. I still had the thought of I'm going to be that person who they pick to be on the boat or on the island. Gotcha. And that's, then that's um, and I I kind of looked at my career as what what do I want to learn? How do I want to grow? And that's kind of how I looked at it. And then, um, and that's kind of how I how I progressed. And it's interesting going from a professional to a first line manager to a manager of managers, and then to an executive. It, you learn a lot of lessons along the way, and you especially especially learn a lot of lessons as a woman, and especially as a black woman. But as a woman, you learn that there the playing field isn't even. And, um, and and you know, there's a phrase that that if uh, if if you know, a woman goes through pain, then a, a woman of color goes through excruciating pain. Right. And that's kind of how, when you think about your career, that's kind of how it was. So again, I was the type of person where I was like, I want to be the person who they pick for that assignment, or or they want on the island or on their boat, and that's all well and good. But then as I I was sort of going through my career with my head down, doing my job, and in those in the instance, I think it was probably midway through becoming a, a middle manager. I lifted my head up from the grindstone and looking around and really noticing the um, 
inconsistencies, the inequity, the uh, inequity around me mm-hmm. with with especially those colleagues in middle management positions. And um, you know, you're, you're in a meeting, and um, you have an idea. You say that you you say it. And it kind of just plops until ten minutes later or half, half hour later in the same meeting, your male counterpart says it, and everyone's like, "Oh, that's just a novel idea. That's so great!" And it's the same thing that you said um, ten, fifteen, twenty minutes ago. Those stories are are real, yeah. And and I experience them, and so um, you kind of go home and you're 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 frustrated, or you go back in your office or your or your cube and you're 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 frustrated and you're angry and you what you do is you find um other women or other women of color to talk to about it and it makes you feel good for a degree because misery loves company but then i think what's happened in the last especially in the last five years what i've seen is um we're not going to just talk amongst ourselves anymore we're going to start doing things about it to change and just correct the, the, the landscape. Um, and that's where I've seen this awakening happening more and more and more over the last, especially five, three, three to five years cool. um, from, from that perspective. And, and, I, and it's been a good thing um, that I've seen. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned several things. I'm taking notes as you talk. So this uh, goes through the conversation. But you mentioned like three key words that stood out to me. Um, And they're kind of they really drive a lot of the like, uh, I guess you mean, I'm calling it philanthropic nonprofit work that I do. Um, You mentioned about uh, having a mentor, uh, exposure and then aspiration. So I think one of the things that uh, and this will kind of lead into our next uh, question as well. I think one of the things and this is my personal opinion, I think one of the things that um, we as a country, as organizations need is to promote the aspirations, right? So we need to encourage young girls to go for the top spot, right? We don't necessarily have to say you need to be a leader, but we should encourage them to shoot for it. And I think oftentimes that aspirations aren't always there. Um, I think we sometimes say, we'll go for this. And then if you happen to get to this level, then that's great. Um, maybe we, we shoot them for the middle area uh, versus the top. Um, so. You also mentioned a mentor, and I think that's very important. Um, mentors are so important uh, within any organization because they, they, I think they continuously keep you on your toes. Uh, good ones do. Uh, they're going to continue to pour into you as well um, as they learn, you learn, and so forth. Um, and I think a good mentor, at least I take this into my uh ability when I mentor young students in public health is that I want you to either try to take my spot or be better than I was. Um, so that, and then exposure, right? So exposing, ex- exposing, uh, young girls to these, uh, opportunities, um, especially in STEM, uh, where there is a large, large gap, uh, not just for women, but women of color, especially, uh, across all things. And it's interesting that you mentioned, uh, that you were a sports reporter and things like that as well. Uh, that's my next week's topic as we get into women's and in sports. So that's really good as well. So I just thought about those. Those are really good things that I, um, 
thought about that you mentioned as well. Uh, so my next question those is... Those are all good things, Cedric, too, because encouraging women, that that's what happens. Our self-talk sometimes is our worst enemy. And I see this so, so much. A job will be posted and it'll list you know, eight, eight attributes or, or experiences or characteristics that they want, they would like the candidate to have um, go, coming into the role. And, and no one, very rarely, very rarely um, does a person, one candidate have all of the attributes listed in a, in, in a job. Right. Oh, very rarely. They'll, they might have 70% or something like that. Now, women will say they'll have nine out of the ten attributes in, in the job posting. And they'll say, I don't have that one, so I really shouldn't post for that job. Right. Where on the male side, they'll have four out of the ten Just go for it. <laughs> and still bid on the job. Right. And, and so, you know, that's the difference. In uh, uh, and I'm generalizing, but male versus female, the gender aspect of building your confidence. For sure. And what we what we always counsel managers and leaders and hiring managers when they post a job, just don't think that you're gonna you're gonna have women bid on it um, through osmosis. You're gonna have to encourage. Mm-hmm. You're gonna have to go out and tap on the shoulder. You're gonna have to openly um, encourage women to bid on the role. Right. And, um, and and that's what's needed when we talk about, you know, from the, from a gender standpoint. Because sure. we are, a lot of times our self-talk is such that um, we don't think we're good enough. And so you're encouraging um, young women to to be more aspirational, I think is, is good counsel. Yeah. For sure. And uh, again, you mentioned other things that kind of roll into our next question or whatever. Um, but I think it's yeah, like you like you said, that that uh, that confidence level uh, is definitely something that uh, I've experienced. But I'm pretty sure women going into a male dominated area, they experience it even more. Uh, so. <laughs> Uh, and I'm just speaking just from a position of a person of color, uh, going into certain areas, you're kind of thinking, well, I don't have all this, you know what I'm saying? This isn't an area, but speaking from the standpoint of a woman, uh, as the book I was reading, uh, he called it a double minority, right? So being possibly a woman or a woman of color, like that kind of already setting you back a little bit further. Um, and I think just because societal pressures too, I guess you could call them that, that gets into, into people's heads, you know, um, because they're not necessarily fitting within kind of the club of upper management and things like that. Um, so my next question gets into how can we increase the number of women in leadership positions? Um, that's, you know, just like you said, C-suite, middle management, um, and executive leadership. And my, I guess, more uh, bigger point to that is why is that important? I think so. The, the let me answer the question: Why it's important? It's important because of some of the statistics that you quoted, where um, women in the labor market in the world, and especially in the United States, are are becoming or soon to be the majority. Mm-hmm. And so, um, from the standpoint of how demographics demographics 
is evolving, you have no choice. <laughs> right. Um, because, you know, women are, are rising in numbers and, and corporations just aren't going to have a choice. And so they have to make sure that, that, uh, that they are, they're courting women in, in leadership roles. And then what should we be doing? One is um, companies have to set aspirational goals. They have to set targets from the standpoint of understanding what does good look like. And the example that I mean in, in my in my responsibility, when I look at what percentage of women should be in our workplace, and there's there's work that you do that um, to determine that, and it's based on the what we call the the external market in the reasonable geographic area of wherever you are, whether it be a, a manufacturing site, whether it be a sales and marketing site, whatever it is, but the reasonable recruiting area. What does the women? What's the percentage of women in the labor market um, in that specific function, functional or, or discipline? And then also looking internally um, at the feeder pool. So if it's a if it's a executive director level position that you have, well, how many women do you have at the level below that, at the director level position, that um, that are in that in that Theater pull into the executive director position. So, um, folks in my organization on the compliance and EEO side, when it comes to the United States, they do those calculations. And so, um, so we have a reasonable understanding and knowledge of what that labor market, what that, what the percentage of women should look like. Mm -hmm. And so, um, we share that. You have to share that with with senior leaders so they understand it. And so, as the openings happen in their respective organizations, they know where the gaps are, what the gaps is, uh, what the gaps are, and they can um, hire accordingly. Right. Now, that doesn't mean that they're hiring and lowering their standards of the qualification for the role. That that is not what that means. Right. And I, I it's so funny, I'll I'll have managers that will say, Well Celeste, you know, um, I, I just want to hire the best person for the job. And so for me that that is code for I don't think the best person for the job is a woman. Right. Or a person of color. Right. And so I always challenge them and I'll say Okay, you're right. I do too. I want to make sure because we can't afford in our business to have not to have anything less than the best scientists, the best engineers, sure. the best sales and marketing people, the best policy people. You're absolutely right. So when I close my eyes and I think of and I visualize the best person for the job, the person that comes into view for me as a black woman, who comes into your view? And when I ask them that question, they throw up, uh, uh, and, and that's where the unconscious bias comes in. Right. Because the person that they're thinking about when they make a statement like that, right, wrong, or indifferent, is a white male. Right. And so, and so, it, it you we have to number one, um, understand the data and share the data and and work with the managers, the talent. Uh, the recruiters and the staffing uh, consultants work with them to make sure that they understand the 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 
makeup of the workforce and what it should look like. And we help them with that and so they have the data. And then the second piece is we have to attack the unconscious bias that exists, that everybody has. Everyone has unconscious bias. And right. the problem is if you, if you are relying on, if you're not checking it and putting it in check and not using that unconscious bias to make decisions around people that is going to cause disparate treatment, then that's when you need to put your unconscious bias, you need to examine it and put it in check. Sure. And so part of what um, I do, my team does, what we coach uh, uh, and work with HR business partners and leaders and recruiting and staffing folks and also um, um, compensation um, professionals as well, because when it comes to pay equity, um, we, we help them to build their capabilities around diversity and inclusion, which helps them to challenge unconscious bias thinking in people managers and leaders. And that's not easy because you're, you're kind of um, not so much attacking because you have to do in a, you have to do it without seeming that you're attacking them. Mm-hmm. But because you're, what you're kind of talking about is some of these views that managers and leaders have, have been instilled and ingrained in them since they were children. Right. You know, based on the household and what what happened, what was going on in their households and their moms and their dads and, and just what was going on there. So it, you have to be careful that you're not challenging their upbringing and their fundamental beliefs. Mm-hmm. But you have to basically kind of say in the workplace, we have policies, we have procedures, we have practices, we have values and standards that you as a manager and as a leader have to uphold. That's doing your job, For sure. regardless of any uh, implicit or unconscious bias that you have on your part. And so that's kind of where you, you, you're walking this tightrope sometimes because you don't want to um, you don't want to cross that line, which makes you sort of say, "Hey, your dad was a." You don't want to see dad was a was a racist or a sexist or this or that. Right, right. Uh, so, I mean, these topics are uncomfortable, right? You start talking about bias and and things like that. Like those things are uncomfortable for people. Uh, and like you said, we all have that unconscious bias, and it's it's a matter of identifying what those things are and being able to process them and check them in that moment. Um, some people might say that like um, this is you know some of the practices that you talk about uh, may be unfair. Like if you're if you're focusing on bringing up women or bringing up women of color, uh, then that's unfair, right? Because it should all be merit-based. But when systematically that place was supposed to be in, you know, that system was supposed to be in place, all those things were bypassed by men who said, well, even if you aren't the best candidate on paper or whatever, uh, we're still going to pick you because we're friends or I know you or, you know, um, and I think a lot of us experience that. I definitely have. I experienced it in sports and playing baseball uh, growing up where, you know, I was passed over for an all-star spot because, you know, mm-hmm. friends' fathers knew each other. You know what I'm saying? I wasn't the best, yeah. he, you know, yeah. that person wasn't the best player. So I think that, um, you know, that same 
mindset, as you mentioned, is in the workplace, of course, and it's often carried into their upbringing and so forth. So that's really good. Thank you for that. Um, so a couple more questions before we finish out. Um, real quickly, uh, what does, and this may be, uh, trying to ask this the best way I can. So what does diversity, equity, and inclusion mean to you? Um, and I think you already got into it that how organizations and boards, you know, can adopt some of those principles. But what does diversity, equity, and inclusion look for you? If there is a, uh, if you could maybe establish an end goal or a vision of what a truly diverse and equitable and inclusive society, what does that look like for you? It would look like. Um Everyone is, you know, it goes back to, you know, some of the the quotes from Martin Luther King where we're judged by the content of our character and not the color of our skin or our gender or our sexual orientation or or our our beliefs, that we truly are um, able to bring our authentic selves to work, whatever that might be. And we're able to contribute and be productive. And there, the bias that exists now and in the past, that it doesn't exist anymore as it pertains to the workplace, as it pertains to society, that um, that we sort of stomped it out. And I, I envision a, a society and a workplace where everyone is treated equal based on what they bring to the table, based on their skills, their capabilities, their competencies, their experiences, their cultures, all of that. Um, and they're contributing and, and everyone feels valued and energized and enabled to contribute and, and to to the mission, the vision, whatever it is that they're that, that they're setting out to do. And, and you know, that kind of, people say, well, that's utopia, that's, you know, that's nirvana, that's not going to happen. But I do, I do believe that it will happen. And I have faith in the generations that are coming into the workplace because the way that they look at the world is so different from the, the previous generation. It's so very different. And some of the hang-ups around, especially around gender um, uh, equity, when I look at you know my daughter's generation and my son's generation, um, there doesn't seem to be as many um, barriers and obstacles in that space. Right. Um, then, as I see in um, the baby boomer and the World War II generation before them. Right. Good. 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 Uh, I wanted to go back to just a quick thing that you mentioned earlier about um, how you wanted to kind of just be that person, that that go-to person. I think that's a, a great kind of attitude to be. And I think that's able, you know, it's been able to take you where you are. And I think it can take a lot of people. Uh, I read a book. Uh, I started it probably in December and I probably finished it in uh, February. But it's one of those books that you have to like read slowly, uh, digest it and uh-huh. take it in. Uh, it was called Good to Great. Um, by Jim Collins, a fantastic book. And it mentioned they did a study on about 15 companies 
and how their market shares increased over a 15 year period. Um, and that was kind of how they determined how a company went from good to great. But one of the principles that they got was um, in order to get to that great status, it was more so about the people. And I think this ties into kind of this diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? It said that, you know, it was getting the right people on the bus. On the bus. The, the quote said, first who, then what? Uh, so find the people first. And then once those people are on the bus, it's going to steer you in the right direction already because those people have the skills, the knowledge, the know-how to get to where you're going once you kind of express your vision. Um, so I think that's important. And I think people can take that into this um, opportunities to increase opportunities for women, you know, uh, find the who, right? Find the the right person for, not necessarily for the job, but to get on the bus. And oftentimes, uh, like you said, it will be a woman uh, because women are increasing in population uh, overall in the country and in the workforce and with education. Uh, most of the schools that I've probably uh, attended, uh, it was majority women. Many of them I can remember, you know, there's been mostly women in my classes and things like that. So uh, they're there. Uh, they, they just have to be seen. It needs to be brought to the forefront. All right. So my last question for you um, or maybe a two part question. All right. So I'll do this. So my first part of this question is you've reached uh, a level of you know executive leadership and some people might say, you know, where else can you go, right? Um, but how do you continue to grow? Uh, that's my first question. And then my last one is really, who is your, what they call now, Shiro? So the person that kind of you looked up to, a female leader or somebody that you've looked up to, try to mimic or anything like that? Um, so your, the first question around, you know, how do I, how do I grow? I, I like to say, uh, how do I continue my journey? It, it's really interesting. In this role, you can never know everything there is to know about every distinct culture in the dimensions of diversity, the vast number of dimensions of diversity that there are. Those that you can see, like gender, ethnicity, race, etc., and those you can't see. Um, LGBTQ status, um, some areas of, of, of whether someone is able-bodied or not, um, so different, different, uh, just different aspects of people and the different dimensions of people, and so my my growth is literally every day I'm learning something new about someone's culture, and. Um, I always laugh because at Merck we have 10, uh, they call it employee networks, employee resource groups. We call them, a, we call them employee business resource groups, but we have 10 of them. And um, I meet with the 10 global leaders of those 10 EBRGs on a monthly basis. And, um, and we talk about, um, different strategies we we talk about business strategies people strategies they provide feedback and they also share kind of um, with everybody you know some of the things that they're doing in, in the upcoming months etc and there's the, the uh, we call it the next gen group but it's the millennial employee resource group they are constantly pushing me 
And when I mean that in a good way, they're constantly challenging my paradigms and my thinking around diversity and inclusion and how fast or slow we go in impacting change. And um, and so I'm always learning from from uh, the, those members and those leaders in, in that particular group around various different things. And it is the most diverse group within that EVRG, because that generation is, is a very diverse generation, as you know. Mm -hmm. And so they're always pushing me about um, learning new things and, and understanding their generation and what they want out of the workforce and what they want out of corporations and what's important to them. And it helps us from the standpoint of our, um, when I go and I'm in, sitting in with the, the other leaders, it helps me to be able to relay that information to them from the standpoint of whether it's our the head of talent acquisition, the recruiting and staffing, and so they're, you know as they're trying to bring in uh, folks across different generations, et cetera. So learning about the Asian population, learning about my colleagues that are in the Latino and Hispanic pocket, uh, culture, learning about those in the uh, LGBTQ culture and that community, learning about persons with disabilities and all the many aspects of that. Um, because we're all not just one aspect of, of or dimension of diversity, we're different. And that's where we're different dimensions of it. That's where intersectionality comes in. Yeah. I am a woman. I am African American. I am straight. I am able bodied. I am fill in the blank. Right. And so, you know, we have to, we have to, you know, I have to continue to be in a spirit of learning. And, and it's just been, it's been fun. It's been, it, it, some days, you know, are better than others. But the learning aspect of it in my journey has been what it's just been energizes me and gives me passion and, and keeps me moving in this space to wherever it is that I'm supposed to be. But I just see myself um, continuing to grow and, and, and help others. And not just within my organization, but looking outside of my organization and locking arms with other leaders across other companies as yep. we yep. look together to just raise the whole business landscape yes. across the globe. That's kind of where I see my journey evolving. Awesome. And then your second question around my hero. Yes. My hero um, unequivocally is, is, is and was my mother. Mm -hmm. She was um, she wasn't in corporate America. She was a domestic engineer extraordinaire. <laughs> um, she passed away in 2007. And um, my father was uh, uh, the first black teacher in Western PA. He was the first black principal, first black um, superintendent. And my mother was in her own way a black activist. Nice. She was the one who was whispering in his ear and, and you know, saying, Russell, you should be taking that. And if, if this person were white, you know that this would be happening. And, 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 and so she was sort of, she was his partner in that space. And everyone always thought it's so funny. She, she, everyone thought she was just this quiet woman 
and um, and she at home, she was not. You know, she was the ruler of the household. Right. She was the disciplinarian. Um, she she was the one who instilled in her children, especially her daughter, that you don't have to put up with anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that was um, something I learned from her. My I learned my discipline from my father disciplinary approach and, and um, you know, results orientation, et cetera. I learned my, from my mom that sarcastic um, humor, activist behavior coming out of the north side of, of Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. um, it came from her. Yeah. And so, you know, those two together, it, it sort of just, that, that's kind of how I am and why I am sort of the person I am today. But she de- definitely is my, and always was and has been my hero. Yeah, that's awesome. Sound like mom's had some grit to her. I like it. Uh, <laughs> she some, did. Some grit to her. That's good. <laughs> she, I, was, she had a tongue on her that I used to laugh and say, she didn't have to. Um, hit you or physically do anything to you because her tongue was so sharp. It cut you enough. Cut you off at the knees, and before you look down, you're standing on your side. So nice. That was my mom. Nice. Yeah, I, 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 I think my biggest thing too is, um, and you mentioned it again, mentors, and, and mentors don't always necessarily have to be the person that's necessarily direct, but I think visually seeing people like yourself um girls seeing people like you in in these areas is inspiration enough it's enough to say that i can get there uh and it's even better when people like you and others are are present to say you know this is how i got here here's how you can you know get here um and i love that you mentioned too that you are you know you're in encouraging to work with other companies. Uh, I consider myself to be a collaborative thinker. I think a lot of times, many of the problems we're trying to solve, uh, there's so many sectors trying to solve the same problem. And oftentimes we're mm-hmm. utilizing so many uh, resources. I know in my field in public health, oftentimes resources are limited because we're, we're based off a lot of government funding and that changes with administration and, and thought, uh, diversity and thought, of course. Um, so the use of collaboration is definitely important, but Going back to that, like you said, with your mom and her being your your hero, I think that's awesome. Um, I think more and more girls, like I said, just need that that woman to look up to. Uh, so we need uh, to continue to promote them in these areas so they can they can shine a light on the others and let them know, you know, it's okay to to not take any crap from anybody. It's okay to kind of be, uh, you know, a little firm um, and and everything else and and what you're doing and, and standing up for what you want uh, and not be considered you know, bossy or rude or anything else like that. Um, but just, you know, straightforward and still be able to, to make a difference. So uh, I think that's awesome. So uh, once again, thanks, Auntie, for being on the show and sharing your experience. I truly, truly appreciate it. I'm super excited about this month. Uh, I think we have a great lineup and I think uh, you are a great way to kick it off. Well, thank you. Thank you, Cedric. And thank you for inviting me. Yes. And I am so proud of you and this podcast and what you've, you've launched. And this is just phenomenal. I had a chance to listen to the one last week um, on maternal 
maternal uh, health and, yeah. and mortality rates and all of that. And it, it was really, really good. You did a good job. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that one is becoming a uh, listens wise. It's it's getting up there. Uh, my first episode has the most it's sitting around like 80, 85 listens. Uh, but I think because it was new, oh, so sure. everybody checked it out. But uh, that episode is definitely gaining traction. The episode about uh, black mental health that I did maybe three, four weeks ago. Uh, that one is definitely a uh, very popular one. Uh, so a lot of people are, are doing that. But uh, I've I think I've found my niche. Uh, I love um, I love people for one. So having the opportunity to speak with people and their experiences and sharing that. Uh, I love doing that. I love connecting with people. Um, I love being the person that meets people, networks and says, oh, I know this person. Uh, I have a mentee who you could talk to if you don't mind. So I love doing that. And I think through this podcast, I've been able to do that as well. Uh, And then lastly, I think it's just fun to talk to people as well. So yeah, uh, it's been good. So thank you for your support. As soon as as this one comes out, I will definitely shoot it across my social networks too. So hopefully you can get a few more subscribers to your podcast. For sure. For sure. Yeah. We're, I, I really want to focus, you know, begin to have more focused, uh, things. So, you know, this month, like I said, women's history month, I think April will be a focus on social justice and community development. May I'm looking at doing a special on South Carolina and all its culture. And then June, we're looking at doing, uh, more focus on men, uh, men and boys mentorship, especially among black boys as well. And how we can kind of reverse a lot of these trends we see with incarceration rates, um, health and wellness and all those things like that. So, um, yeah, we're going good. We're going strong. So I appreciate it. Excellent. Will you keep up the good work? Thanks. Thanks. So with that being said, I I want to once again promote my friend Chanel Alexander. So another uh, woman owned business. Uh, It's called Sinful Wishes. Uh, Sinful Wishes has candles, broom sprays, wax melts and all things that smell good. Uh, I got mine. So be sure to get yours at www.sinfulwishes.com. Let me know if you have something you'd like for me to promote. Send me a sample and I will definitely promote for you on here. My Instagram page. So that's all I got. Thanks, everybody for listening. Uh, Be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast. We're on all major platforms, uh, SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and iHeartRadio. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at said underscore talk. The links to the show are in the bio. And lastly, be sure to cop a said talk tea. Uh, All proceeds go towards my nonprofit organization, Palmetto Pride Sports, uh, which is a low cost club and travel sports organization dedicated to minority youth who play sports with low minority representation. So baseball, softball, soccer, lacrosse. Uh, And if you're interested in learning more about that, follow us on Instagram at Palmetto Pride 803 or email me at smwarren1906 at outlook.com. So stay tuned for next week's episode. And as always, thanks for listening. Talk to you later.